This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Well, I am so excited to introduce uh, our community to you, Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy, and to introduce you to our community. Dr. Murthy is a renowned physician and research scientist serving his second term as United States Surgeon General. He is the Vice Admiral commanding a uniformed service of over 6,000 public health officers serving vulnerable populations across the country. And he's here today because he has spent the past several years investigating loneliness as a public health crisis. He's been speaking publicly about this, and he's been speaking courageously about this for the past many years, and there's so much for us to learn and to talk about together. So I am thrilled to introduce to you our Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. Thank you. This is this is really a dream, I have to say. (laughs) We're so thrilled to have you with us. Um, So, just I want to just start by saying um, our community knows that loneliness is something that I care really deeply about. This loneliness epidemic, which I really came to as a pastor, has been a core driver of our um, of our thinking around community, not only of our preaching and writing and speaking here, but also the way that we think about physical space and small groups and things that we hand people when they walk in the door and who's there handing it to them. And so this is really very much a part of the, um, the, it's woven into the very essence of our community. And it has been very exciting for me to, to read your book, um, your extraordinary book together. And as I've told you, it felt when I read it, like I was meeting my my best friend who I never knew before, um, it felt like I was meeting somebody who cares about all the same things and even takes in a lot of the same inputs but is processing them through a slightly different vantage point, yours through medicine and health and mine through faith and spirituality, and then landing on some of the same conclusions that we've come to. And then when we spoke, I realized that that is a false binary, that you are not engaging from a science and health vantage point and me from a spirituality standpoint. But actually, this is one big, complex conversation that has to do with our bodies, our spirits, our hearts, and our souls. And that's why we were so excited to do this right in the midst of Yom Kippur, our most sacred day of the year, so that we could think together about how we can work to stitch together the social fabric of our communities and of our society so that we can flourish spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And that's why we wanted to land this conversation right here, um, right in this moment. So fellow traveler, (laughs) I welcome you. And I would love if you could start by orienting a little bit to the room um, and and helping us settle into the conversation that we're about to have together. 
Absolutely. Well, first, thank you so much, Rabbi Browse, for having me. And to all of you, thank you for that incredibly warm welcome. Uh, this is such a special day of the year, and to have the opportunity to share it with you is an incredible honor and privilege for me. So I'm incredibly grateful. And I, I grew up actually with uh, a best friend in high school uh, who, who was Jewish and helped me understand a lot about the holidays you know, over the course of our growing up. And I think this is a particularly important moment for us to engage in the reflection that Yom Kippur calls on us to do because there is so much happening in our world right now and so much in our individual lives. Um, it, to me, walking into this, this gathering, I could just feel this sense of warmth and community uh, that I have missed over the last few years. And I think many of us in the throes of the pandemic found that it was hard to be with one another. But moments like this remind me of just how important it is for us to be with each other, to accompany each other on our journeys, to show up and support one another, and to remind one another that we are not alone. Because so often it can feel like we are. It's important that we're together also because it feels like there are so many challenges that people are facing in their lives. And I'm curious if, just by a show of hands, how many of you have had the experience of picking up the paper or checking the news online and just feeling utterly exhausted by the headlines that you read? I think just about everyone here. There's a lot happening in the world and the crises seem to multiply. I have a friend, Keith, in Northern California who calls this the poly crisis. It feels like whether it's climate change or violence or whether it's polarization or a pandemic, that there's always something to be worried about. But this is why being together is so important, not only because we find strength in each other, because we remind each other also of the rest of the picture. And it turns out there's more to see than solely the crises before us. And Alasi say this, this is what concerns me most though, as Surgeon General, as a doctor, as a father myself, is that when I travel around the country and I talk to people, as I am privileged to do, I find that so many people feel the sense of worry and despair. It's like a dark cloud that has settled over their lives. And it's not that they want to feel that way. It's not that we are inherently pessimistic. I think, in fact, we're quite the opposite. We want to be optimistic. We want to be courageous and bold and forward-looking. But many people aren't feeling that. And part of what I've been trying to understand more deeply is what is driving that deeper sense of despair that so many people feel across the country? For sure, the crises that I just mentioned and COVID in particular have all contributed to this. But my gut is that there's something deeper that's happening, something that was happening long before COVID came on the scene. I think it's being stoked in many ways and accelerated uh, by the experience many of us have on social media, which often has become an accelerant for fear and for division. But I think at the heart of what is driving this despair is that we've become a lonely nation. One in two adults in America are struggling with loneliness. The numbers are even higher among young people. And this is happening at a time where we actually truly do need each other more. And so I think that this crisis of disconnection of loneliness is driving the broader crisis. Uh, but the flip is also true though. And when we think about our own lives, if we reflect on the moments where we felt deeply connected to one another, whether it was 
you know, over the course of today at services or at other points in our lives, those are powerful moments where we feel there is so much we can do that even huge adversity feels like it's something we can tackle, that we can get beyond because we are together. And that is the good news, is that to address the crisis of connection in our time is not about transforming us into something fundamentally different than who we are. This is about a return to who we have always been for thousands of years. It's, it's about a recognition and a reclaiming of our identity as people who were made to live with one another, to support one another, and to recognize that there's no weakness in interdependence, but there is in fact great strength and power that comes from it. And we're gonna to come to this. Um, I wanna, before we go into the remedy to loneliness, I wanna dive a little bit deeper into what's actually going on in the country and what you found when you started traveling around, because my understanding is you, weren't, you didn't think that loneliness was gonna be the theme of your, uh, of your tenure as Surgeon General. Um, in, my, in my own research, I just wanna share two of the studies that, that really disturbed me the most. One of them said that um, one third of Americans have absolutely no encounters or relationships with their neighbors. They don't know their neighbors' names to their north, south, across the street, they don't know their neighbors. And the other is that an astonishing 20% of Americans say that they don't have any close confidant at all. That there's nobody in their life who they can share their deepest pain, their fear, their worry. That was pre-pandemic. And the pandemic only exacerbated all of these trends. So as I've been trying to understand what's actually going on with our country and what's going on with the human heart, um, I found your definition of loneliness to be the, by far the most sensitive um, and, and, and helpful definition that I've come across. So I wonder if you can share with us how you even define loneliness. Absolutely. And let me just say how much it warms my heart to be able to have this conversation with you uh, as somebody who has been a leader in the community, but who understands what's happening at the core. So just thank you for all of your insight and leadership, Rabbi Browse, in this area. It takes courage to raise issues like this, whether it's in front of a congregation or a community, and I, I don't want us to take that for granted. Uh, but what you're mentioning, uh, there's the definition, this is important because sometimes people think, well, you know, I'm in a workplace where I'm surrounded by hundreds of people. My child's in school, and they're surrounded by thousands of kids on campus. They can't be lonely, and I shouldn't be lonely. But it turns out that loneliness is a subjective feeling. It's not always related to how many people are around us. And it's the subjective feeling that the connections that we need in our life are greater than the connections we actually have. And in that gap, we experience loneliness. And so you can have just two or three friends around you and feel not lonely at all. Or you could be surrounded by hundreds of people and feel profoundly alone if you don't feel like you're known by them. If you don't feel like they get you. If you don't feel like you can show up and truly be who you are. And that is what I found when I was traveling during my first tenure as Surgeon General. So many people who unexpectedly were telling me uh, that they felt alone. Now, they didn't use that word, I feel alone. They didn't say, my name is Vivek, my name is Sharon, I feel lonely. They never said that. They said it in other ways. Like I remember a college student in Texas telling me, you know, I've been on campus and there are a lot of kids around, but I don't know, I just feel like nobody really knows who I am, and I feel like I just can't be myself when I'm around other people. Uh, I remember a high school student uh, telling me in California, actually not too far from here, just in San Diego, 
that she felt that when she used social media, she actually felt worse about her friends and she well felt worse about herself. And so she felt more alone. I, I was giving a talk in DC uh, not long after that. And a, a woman came up to me afterward and told me how much it meant that we were talking about the issue of loneliness because her husband had struggled for years without real friendships, that she was his only confidant, the only one that he would actually be real with or express any emotions around. But he was really, really struggling with a sense of loneliness. and. It actually took me a moment when I was talking to her to realize that there was somebody standing behind her and she shifted a few inches this way and I saw that it was her husband who was in tears behind her, just feeling so deeply that moment and unable to speak. So these many experiences helped me realize that loneliness is extraordinarily common. We don't talk about it as often. It hides in the shadows and especially in the extroverted society that we live in, people feel a sense of shame if they are struggling with loneliness. Um, I know that feeling firsthand. You know, as a child who grew up feeling quite lonely uh, at times, I was, when I was growing up in Miami, Florida, you know, I, there weren't a whole lot of people who looked like me in my school, who practiced my faith, who uh, understood the foods that we ate. And all of those things kind of made me feel like I was different, compounded by being really shy and introverted. And I found it was just hard to make... Uh, to make friends, even though I really wanted to. And a lot of days I didn't want to go to school at all. In fact, I would sometimes fake having a stomach ache, I will admit. And so that my mother, you know, would out of sympathy, let me stay home for the day. And I'm glad she's not here in the congregation. Otherwise she would uh, take me to task after this talk because she still doesn't know. But these are the... <laughs> she knows now. Is this being recorded? <laughs> she... <laughs> uh, but these are the things that we do to avoid pain. And I use that word very intentionally, pain, because loneliness is painful. And it can, it can feel in, and manifest in different ways to different people, but it is a source of pain. And as human beings, we will seek to alleviate that pain, whether it's by reaching for something that may seek to alleviate that pain, even if it harms us, like alcohol or drugs. We may, see, we may resort to violence at times. We may do different things that may harm ourselves and others. But when that pain is there, it's very difficult. On the other hand, if we respond to the pain of loneliness by reaching out to someone, by talking to a friend, by getting in the car and going to see a family member, that can help greatly. And that's why, as you and I have talked about, I, I tend to think about loneliness as a signal, like hunger or thirst that our body sends us when we are missing something that we need for survival. And just like hunger or thirst, if we respond to it in a healthy way, the feeling goes away. It's when it persists for a long period of time that we run into profound health challenges. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting irony that we, we've talked about how lone, some, of our, some of the pain we experience in our bodies teaches our bodies that we're in danger. So hand on the stove teaches you pull your hand away before you get burned. And loneliness, in some ways, it has the, uh, the inverse effect. So when people feel the pain of loneliness, it often drives us further away from community instead of in. Yeah. And so because we, don't, we, we feel like we're not wanted or we're not needed in that place. And so this is, we have to actually be a little bit counter-instinctual, I think, in our response to loneliness so that we step closer to social connection rather than avoiding social connection, I'm not going to go out, I'm not going to go to the dinner party, you know, I'm not really wanted or I won't really be welcome there, but instead stepping closer. In our Jewish tradition, 
um, the idea of living dialogical, dialogically, is, is essential to how we understand human nature. So in the beginning of the book of Genesis, we're told that, um, that Adam Harishon, the first person, was created alone. But then God said, you, you need someone. Adam was alone. And God said, it's not good for a person to be fundamentally alone. And Chava, Eve, uh, was created in order to be an Ezer Konegdo to Adam, to, to Adam. And an Ezer Konegdo we translate often as a helpmate, but it really means someone to help him by, a, by being opposite him, by standing opposite him. And for many years, I've understood that to be kind of the key to power, to strong relationships, that we have to be able to find people in our lives who can stand opposite us and say, no, 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 connecto against that person even, and say, you're better than that. I know you can do better than that. And, and there's, a, um, there's a midrash from our tradition, an ancient rabbinic text that tells the story that at the end of the, first, the sixth day of creation, which was the end of their first day of life, Adam and Eve created on the sixth day. So it was this beautiful day and they're frolicking in the garden and everybody, you know, they're having so much fun with the animals and the, all the trees. And, um, and then the, the sun starts to go down and Adam gets really scared because they've never seen darkness before. And he starts to cry and, um, and Eve sees him crying and it says in the Midrash, comes and sits across from him and they cry together all night long. And then in the morning, the sun starts to rise. And we learn from this, that this is the way of the world. That, that the sun will go down and then the sun will rise again. There will inevitably be chapters of pain and heartache, of grief, of loss, of longing. Who's going to be sitting across from you, weeping with you in the night? And I love that in the story, Eve doesn't lift him up and say, it's okay, it's okay, stop crying. She just sits with him and cries with him all night long until the, until the light comes. And so I, I'm, I'm really struck by this notion of the need for, we are, we are biologically and, and spiritually, um, we are relational beings that we actually need each other in our core. And I know that you've uh, witnessed and helped to spark many really creative ways for people to find their way to one another in community to actually answer that very profound human need. So can you tell us about maybe some of the more creative things that you've witnessed um, ways of people finding their ways to one another that we might also be able to incorporate into our own lives and practice. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm actually really glad that you went back to scripture because I think when we look at scripture across faith traditions, we see that there are these common themes around love and friendship and community. Themes that remind us that no, we're not meant to go out and to manage all of life by ourselves but that we're there to help one another and support one another. And as obvious as that may seem to many of us in the room, that's actually not how we typically operate in life. And it's not always the message that our children get from the culture around them, which often tells them being independent is about not needing anyone. It's about being able to you know, put on a brave face and never show uh, that you're in need or that you're vulnerable or that you're having a moment of weakness. But to be that way is not to be human because that's not how we are designed. And when I think about ideas for like that I've seen, I've seen so many beautiful ideas that give me hope that the hard work of rebuilding the social infrastructure in our lives is already happening. We need to accelerate it. Uh, but I'll tell you one tradition that I participated in myself, uh, which is a tradition of Moais. This is an Okinawan tradition. 
Uh, and the way the tradition be, it was many, many years ago was that young uh, children would be brought together in groups of perhaps five, six, seven, and would be told, okay, from now on going forward, you, you children together, you're going to have each other's backs. Mm -hmm. You're making an explicit commitment to one another. Mm -hmm. You are going to be a Moai. And that means whether somebody has a health problem, a financial problem, a problem in their relationship, the Moai is going to show up. Some years ago, in 2017, 18, when I was struggling with my own bout of loneliness after my uh, time in government had ended, my first stint as Surgeon General, and I was, and it ended abruptly, and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life because I suddenly was cut off from the community I knew at work, but I had neglected the community that I had before. I had, and I'm not proud to say this, but I had uh, largely not kept in touch with friends. I had was distracted even when I was with family. And I was on my phone, checking email, trying to keep up with news, thinking all of this is part of doing the job and I only have a short period of time to do the job. Regardless of what the explanations were, the reality was that being increasingly disconnected was wearing on my spirit and actually contributed to my burnout. And dealing with the throes of that, uh, you know, after that first stint ended, uh, I found myself at this retreat center for this fellowship that I'm a part of with two friends who I love dearly, but rarely ever see. And just out of curiosity, how many of you have friends who you would love to spend more time with, but you just never see each other because you live in different places or life is busy? Many of us, right? And so we were like that, uh, these two friends and I. And at the end of that walk, we, we said, you know, it would be great if we saw each other more often. And we all had this sinking feeling, I think, right at the same time that that's not going to happen mm. if we just walk away. So we actually decided in that moment, walking around that lake, to create our own Moai. And so we made an explicit commitment to one another that we were going to video conference with each other once a month for two hours. That during that time, we were going to talk about the stuff that really mattered to our lives. Uh, and to talk about the things that we often didn't talk about with friends, our health, our fears, our finances, our family. We also made a commitment to give each other our full attention during that time, not to be distracted by devices, not to be multitasking. And in between those calls, if something came up, a big decision, a worry, a loss, uh, a moment of joy, that we would text each other to keep each other posted. And if needed, we would get on a call and help each other figure out whatever the challenge was. That Moai with these two brothers of mine, Sonny and Dave, it saved my life in so many ways. It changed my life profoundly. It helped me make big decisions about what to do with work and with family, with my health, decisions that I had been struggling with uh, for a long time. So that is the power of what just a simple, explicit commitment mm -hmm. to friends can do. And the truth is, I suspect what was true with Sunny and Dave will be true for many of you if you think about your friends, which is that you, sometimes we think, ah, I don't want to reach out to my friends. They're busy. They have a lot going on. I don't want to impose on them that word impose looms large, I think, in our lives and our decision-making. But the truth is, most of the time, our friends are thinking the same thing. Gosh, I would love to spend more time together, but I don't want to impose. I don't want to reach out. And one of the things I think we need to do is to be in each other's lives more, mm -hmm. to lean more in to those situations, because people don't always ask. Um, I, I'll tell you one thing I wasn't, maybe I'll share this. I was it happened, it was very fresh in my mind because it happened yesterday. I was, um, I was reading an article uh, that a friend had sent me about the importance of showing up for our friends. Uh, this is not bad that I, I was just literally reading at like 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, 
And about an hour or two after that, I suddenly get this mess call, call from my friend, my one of my be- my best friend from middle school, actually, well, who I'm still in touch with. And she was calling me because she had been at church that morning with her mother, and her mother suddenly developed a headache, a terrible headache. And she thought, "Gosh, let me take her home." She took her, started taking her home, and then she, her mom felt nauseous, and then she passed out. And it turned out when she took her to the hospital, she'd had a catastrophic bleed in her brain. Uh, and we, and my friend was calling me to figure out what do we do? Should we get a second opinion? Should I send her to surgery? They're asking whether or not we want to do surgery. Not these are monumental decisions and incredibly painful decisions. But I was so glad that she called in that moment um, because it gave me an opportunity to show up for her as a friend. She invited me in to be a part of this moment and to struggle through it together. And I, I talked to her last night. I've been in touch with her this morning. And I, I can only, I know how hard it is in those moments to reach out. I know because I've been in the hospital with family members who are very sick wondering and worrying if I should reach out to somebody or not. It's not easy. But in those moments, I think it's important for us to reach out because it's not only good for us, it gives other people, our community, our Moai, our extended family, an opportunity to show up for us and to feel the power of community, which whether we come together around tragedy or around celebration, that community is healing and we all need it in our own way. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I'll share my version of that story, um, which is I, um, mine actually starts back when my rabbi, Marcelo Brunstein, who happens to be here, um, when he had a loss many years ago and um, when your mother died. And Marcelo Brunstein, you know him here as our Kol Nidre, you know, great pitch giver. But back in New York, he was really one of the most brilliant, loved rabbis um, of all time. And I had already moved out here. And I remember, Marcelo, when your mother died, I just thought literally thousands of people will be at his house, hugging him, bringing him food, taking care of him. And so I wrote a note and sent it off to you. I didn't call and I didn't show up. And I remember next time we saw each other, Marcelo said to me, Sharon, you weren't there, and I needed you. And he said, next time, err on the side of presence, just showing up. And it hurt me, and it changed me. It hurt me that I had hurt you. Do you remember? Yeah. I wrote it in my book now, so it's, <laughs> it will be in the hardcover version soon enough. Anyway, it changed me. And when we started to build Ikar, it was the core of, it was a driving force for me in speaking with our community about showing up about how we have to actually show up for each other and not just assume like, oh, they don't want, they don't want guests right now. They don't want visitors. I mean, you should call before you show up. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but then I, I wrote this book about the, the sacred power of showing up and what I've seen from this community, just being present with each other, st- is standing together, showing up in moments of celebration and sorrow and solidarity. And the book is coming out in a few months and then my father died. And we, my family and I have been through this experience in this past month, it's one month today, in which this family has shown up for us. And everything that I'm writing about from my experience as a pastor, I'm experiencing now as a mourner. Mm. 
And all of a sudden, I see like literally hundreds of people driving out to Simi Valley. It's 103 degrees out there and spending hours burying my father with their hands, like placing earth on my father's coffin. And then hundreds of people coming every night and just bringing food. We got a guy who lives in Malibu bringing LaCroix, schlepping it in in his suit coming from work. And <laughs> I know, I know. Um, and, but literally hundreds of people just showing up just to, just to respond with love when the moment calls. And I believe that this Torah is the central Torah of our time, that this teaching is so essential to the fabric of our communities and of our lives, that we ha actually have to learn how to see each other. And it's precisely in those moments when we, might, when we would instinctively pull away because we think that we're not needed there or other people's pain is destabilizing for us, and we don't want to catch it. We don't want to catch the grief or catch the divorce or catch the worry, and so we pull away. But instead, there's this kind of centrifugal force that's pulling us toward each other and saying, it actually matters when we are present for each other. In the midst of all of this, one of our friends from New York got on a plane and flew to LA to just come to Shiva one night because he wanted to be with us in person. And I heard he was coming and I'm like, that's crazy. It's like, I know he loves me. He doesn't need to come, but he showed up. Greg Rosenberg showed up in LA, came to Shiva and then got back on a plane and went home. And I know I'll remember it for the rest of my life. So there's such power in this teaching and I'm so grateful. I, I, I want to um, share with the community one piece of your work that, has, that really unlocked something for me in my own experience with loneliness which is, um, I, I had been using for years this paradigm that comes from Rambam, from Maimonides, about three different levels of or kinds of relationship. He talks about how there's a kind of, the, the, the language differs, but the, the word, this is from his um, commentary to Pirkei Avot, and he says, uh, he says there are three different types of, of love or friendship. There's ohev to elet, ohev menuchav, ohev ma'ala. There's a kind of basic um, utilitarian or functional relationship. I need you, you need me, we serve each other, but when the need is gone, the relationship's gone. Then there's a relationship of mutual concern. We worry about each other, we show up for each other in hard moments, um, we celebrate together, we enjoy each other's presence and, and we care for one another. But then he says there's a level that's even higher than that, which are relationships of shared purpose. That's when people actually together are building towards something that's bigger than either one of them alone. You, many of you have heard me share this because for years I've been sharing this at Ikar as a kind of central reason for joining a community. Why do you join a community? Because we want to be in those second to um, those top tier levels of relationship with people of shared concern and with people of shared purpose. Then I read your book and you have a slightly different framing also of three. And I would love if you can share it with the community now, because for me, what you explained uh, in your three circles of relationships actually helped me understand my own heart in a way that I didn't before. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. I do, yeah. Gosh, I hope, because I did write it, but, <laughs> but you never know. Um, yeah, so the, the three, I was thinking about this because I realized that there were people who said that they were lonely who actually had parents who loved them. There were people who said they were lonely who were part of an incredible temple or a church community or a mosque. And so I was trying to understand this. And as I dug into it, what I realized is that there were, it seemed to be three types of relationships that people needed in their life. 
One were intimate connections, the second are relational connections, and the third are community or collective connections. Intimate connections, these are the kind of connections we have with like a spouse or best friend, people who know us really well with whom we can just be ourselves. We don't have to put on airs, we don't have to have a mask on, we can just be who we are. These are the people who would show up for us in the middle of a crisis, uh, the people who we would call in the middle of a crisis. And then there are relational connections. These are good friends, the people you might uh, go on vacation with or have over for your children's birthday parties or have over on a weekend. The collective or community connections are connections where we have a sense of shared purpose or affiliation uh, with others. Those could be uh, the people at our community of faith. Those could be people that we volunteer with. They could be folks in our workplace if we really feel a strong sense of connection and mission and purpose at work. But we need all those three types of connections. And the reason this is so important to understand is if you are, let's say, married to somebody who's struggling with loneliness, it might be easy if you didn't know that otherwise to think, gosh, his or her loneliness must be a, a testament to what's missing in this relationship. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe our relationship isn't enough. But your relationship might be perfectly fine. It's just that there are other types of connections that we need as well. One thing that I'll just also say just on this point about connection is sometimes with figuring out how to connect with other people, it can feel overwhelming when you look at the extent of loneliness in our lives. But I actually think there are a few simple things that we can do to actually help rebuild connection in our life. Uh, number one, as we were talking about just now, we can show up for others in small ways, in big ways, when it's easy, when it's hard. But simply showing up, whether that's calling someone to check on them whether that's texting them to say, hey, I'm thinking about you, I wanna know how you're doing, whether that's coming by, you know, when something has gone wrong or writing a note to be a part of a celebration. However we show up, the simple act of showing up and be powerful. It can be for two minutes, it can be for two days, but showing up matters. The second thing we can do is to be present. Like, I, just here, I'm also curious, how many of you have had the experience of being in conversation with someone where they were distracted by their phone and you knew that they weren't fully there, right? Almost everyone, right? This is a very common experience. Now, the flip of that is that we have also probably been in a circumstance where we did that to somebody else, right? That's called fubbing, by the way. It's when you snub somebody with your phone, fubbing. Anyhow, the, the thing is, we've all done this, like in, and I've done this too, I'm not proud of that. But we think, oh, I can multitask, I can pay attention to them, I can do what I'm doing. But people know, and we actually can't multitask. Our brain actually rapidly tasks switches when we think we're multitasking. So uh, I might be able to, if I'm multitasking while I'm speaking to Sharon, the rabbi Browse, I may be able to recall some specific words she said, but I've missed the nuance, I've missed the context, and so I'm not fully there. So that's the second part, is to be present. And the third is to be of service. Finding ways to help other people, whether it's simply helping a coworker who dropped their papers, or whether it's stopping by uh, a classmate's you know, desk on the way out of class to see how they're doing because it seemed like they were having a rough day, or whether it's helping a neighbor uh, who may need some help cleaning up their yard. These small acts of service are the glue that holds us together, that actually helps us rebuild our connection. And finally, just keep in mind why this all matters, because this is not happening, this crisis of loneliness, because we failed to pass a law or because one program uh, was not funded. This is not about policies and programs alone. In my view, the loneliness crisis is fundamentally a moral and spiritual crisis that we're going through in America. A moral crisis is when we lose our moral compass. And our moral compass 
has to be grounded in a core set of values that help guide us on decisions on how we spend our time, what we prioritize, uh, what programs we support, what leaders we choose. This is all guided by our moral compass. And when I right now, what I worry about is that there's so many people I, I, I meet across our country who say to me, you know, Vivek, it feels like it's become more important to be right than to be compassionate. It feels like somehow it's become more important um, to seem strong than to be kind to others, to be successful than to be generous. And in fact, there, there was a recent study a few years ago from the Harvard Graduate School of Education where they actually surveyed uh, young people and asked them, what do you think your parents prioritize for you? And overwhelmingly, the kids said that they believed their parents felt it was more important for them as kids to be successful than to be kind, mm. right? So this, what, this is actually the why where scripture and history help us. Because what, what I have learned during the course of my life from scripture is that when love is the galvanizing force in our lives, when it's informing our moral compass with the core pillars of love, with kindness and generosity, with friendship and service, the kind of world that creates for us and guides us into is one where we feel we belong, where we know we have each other's backs, where we can all thrive. But the flip is that when not love, but when fear is a galvanizing force in our life, then we find that we are making decisions driven by anger, by insecurity, by jealousy, and by rage. And that actually pushes us further and further apart from one another that deepens our sense of isolation and create, creates this vicious cycle where the lonelier we get, the angrier we become, the more we push each other apart and the lonelier we become. And so this fundamental struggle between love and fear, this is the defining choice of our time. And it applies to decisions we make in our own lives. It, makes, it applies to how we decide what programs we're going to support in our community, where we're going to invest as a family, as an organization. It informs what kind of leaders we choose. And if we choose love, as scripture and history guide us to, then we can stitch back the social fabric of our communities. But that requires a moral reawakening in our country. Nothing less than that. Because this isn't, again, about a specific policy or program. It's about the compass that guides us. It's about making sure that compass is grounded in love. And it's about having the courage to follow that compass when it guides us in our actions and in our words. Oh, beautiful. I wish we could talk for three more hours, but, um, but I hope that this is the beginning of a conversation with our community and not the end. I do want to share with you um, one last piece of text and then ask if you could offer us a blessing. Um, as we close. Um, so uh, very, very, very well known, the, the ninth plague in the book of Exodus, um, this, the penultimate plague is the plague of darkness. And we've talked about it a lot here. Why is it we imagine that the plagues are getting progressively worse as God is trying to message to Pharaoh that it's time for the liberation of the Israelite people, but the plague of darkness just doesn't seem as bad as some of the other horrible things that have come before um, and then we learn that the darkness, it's described as a darkness that's so thick that a person can't see another person. And I just want to share this with you because it's one of the commentators. This is a 19th century Polish rabbi who said that the deepest darkness is when one cannot even see his neighbor and therefore can't join him in his suffering and pain. 
Once a person no longer feels his neighbor's pain, it renders him completely impotent. In other words, we are built to see each other, to care for each other, to help lift one another. And when we don't do that, we're actually harming not only the person who's care, who we're not giving care to, but we're actually harming ourselves as well. And so I love this as a, a call for a kind of moral and spiritual revival, that we have to think differently about who we are and what it means to, to connect with each other in such a powerful way. You close your book with an incredibly beautiful blessing for your children, um, given all of the pain that you encountered as you've traveled around the country and all the traps that you've seen that people can fall into. Um, you give them an offering um, of love. And I wonder if you could give us a version of that as a blessing for us on this Yom Kippur, on this holiest of days, to, um, to just remind us of what actually matters most as we um, begin this new year full of pain and also full of so much promise. Mm. Well, thank you. And I, I brought that that closing blessing with me. And um, I'll show you one other thing, which is, I don't typically show this to people, but since we're in a, a special community here, uh, it, this is what I carry to remind me of the stakes of this moral transformation and revival that we need to undertake. These are my children's socks that they wore when they were small, uh, when they were infants. Uh, my son, Tejas, and my daughter, Shanti, they're now five and seven. These don't fit anymore, to be clear. Uh, but I, I take them with me whenever I travel and whenever I give talks or do something that's important because I want to remind myself of what's at stake. Seven years ago, you know, when we learned that we were expecting uh, my son, Tejas, we were incredibly excited. You know, my wife and I got married a bit later in life. And, you know, you never know if you're uh, be, you know, able to have a family, ha have a, a children. And, 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 you know, when we found out we were pregnant, we were incredibly excited. But on the other hand, we were also worried. Right? I, I, I wonder, I looked at, this was 2016. It was a time when there was so much division and, and violence and, and hateful rhetoric uh, in our country. And... I couldn't help but wondering, what kind of world are we bringing our son into? And is it going to be a world where people are there to lift him up when he falls down, as he inevitably will at some point? Uh, is it a world that's going to judge him because of the color of his skin and the fact that he has a funny-sounding name like his father? Like, What kind of world is it going to be? And I don't fully know the answer to that question yet, because we are collectively creating the world that my children and your children and all of us will live in. And there is no responsibility that, that I can think of that is more sacred uh, than that. But I also, it's why I believe this moral reawakening is so important because it is a sacred responsibility that we have. And it's one though that we're not alone in. There are millions of people around the country who want what we're talking about today, to live in a world where we are more connected where people feel like we have each other's backs, where even though we may have differences of opinion or experiences or backgrounds, where we recognize there's something beautiful, a flame of divinity that exists within each of us, that connects us and that makes us whole. And that's what we're called to remember today. But I say this because I want you to know that we are not alone on this journey, that we are part of an invisible movement of people who are guided by kindness, who are guided by generosity, who are guided by that spirit of service 
and friendship uh, that we're talking about. It's not always easy to see them. We don't talk about this, but it's why we have to make this implicit desire that we have explicit. It's why we have to build a movement around this. So this blessing that I wrote to my kids goes as follows. It, it was a letter, really, that and they were thinking behind it is I, I wrote this because I figured at some point in the future, whether I'm here or not, I want them to be able to, to read what it is that my wife and I hope for them in the years ahead. Dear ones, may you inhabit a world that puts people at the center where everyone feels they belong, where compassion is universal and kindness exchanged with generosity. The most important thing we wish for you is a life filled with love, the love that is given and received with a full heart. Love is at the heart of living a connected life. Choose love. Always. We worry about the world that you're inheriting. When you reach out with kindness, will your compassion be reciprocated? When you are in need of support, will others reach out to you? Right now, the world you are inheriting is locked in a struggle between love and fear. So we teach you that every healthy relationship inspires love, not fear. Love shows up as kindness, generosity, and compassion. It is healing. It makes us whole. The greatest gifts you'll ever receive will come through relationships. The most meaningful connections may last for a few moments or for a lifetime, but each will be a reminder that we were meant to be a part of each other's lives, to lift one another up, to reach heights together greater than any of us could reach on our own. Our hope is that you will always have friends in your lives who love and remind you of your innate beauty and strength. Equally as important, we hope you will do the same for others. You are precious precisely because you have the ability to give and receive love. That is your magic. And it is our mission as parents to make sure that you know that no one can ever take that away from you. It pains us that we won't always... It pains us that we won't always be there for you when you feel lonely and sad. But we offer this simple prescription to remind you that you are loved. When these moments of loneliness and suffering arise, take your right hand, as I invite all of you to do, and place it on your heart and close your eyes. Think about the friends and family who have been there for you throughout your life, in moments of joy and also in the depths of disappointment. The people who have listened to you when you were sad the people who believed in you, even when you lost faith in yourself, the people who have held you, lifted you up, and seen you for who you really are. Feel their warmth and their kindness washing over you, filling you with happiness. And know that their love will always be there, even if they are not physically with you, because it resides in your heart. And now, open your eyes.
What each of us felt during that brief meditation was the power of love. Love is the oldest medicine we have. Its power to heal is immense. I know there are moments where we think that love is scarce in this world, where we think, well, we become mean-spirited and selfish. But that's not really who we are. We are generous and kind. We are compassionate and good. We are decent, loving. And this is our moment to reclaim that identity, to remind ourselves of who we are, and to remind our children as well. Amen, amen, amen. Dr. Murthy, I, I bless you the way that in the Talmud, our students would bless their teachers when they would depart from them saying, may you be blessed to witness the world that you have envisioned for all of us. Thank you for being such a blessing in this world. Amen. So thank you. It's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.